Welcome to the Story Night Podcast, a place where we share hearts, our hurts, and how God's wonder intersects with the story of our lives. A ministry of Calvary Mac. Here's our host, Jessica Campbell. Hi, ladies, and welcome back to the Story Night Podcast. I am so excited for this episode tonight, and I know you are going to love this story. This is another throwback episode. This story comes from the Santa Barbara Community Church Live Story Night event from October of 2010, and our speaker is Loretta, and with so much to, to share about her, we actually were in the same city at about the same time. You're going to hear her talk about Irvine and the church they started there, and small world. I grew up just across the street from, from that church, which is just another fun connection. One thing to note, the recording from 2010 actually cuts off before Loretta finished. So the recording is going to cut off right when you're kind of on the edge of your seat wondering about this whack-a-mole analogy. But rest assured, I have Loretta with me. And so she's going to be able to catch us up, fill in the blanks, and tell us a little bit about her life over the past decade uh, to close out our episode. So with that, ladies... Sit back and enjoy this story from 2010. If I were to title this talk, which I now will, I would call it Living in Hope. Pretty much for the reason that there have been many, many times in my life when I had none and wasn't sure how to put one foot in front of the other. And to be able to do that with humor and faith was, uh, and is, and continues to be a challenge. You know, this, this bit about stories. I'm just up here telling my story. I want you to know that single, married, old, young, working, non-working, you know, homemaker, business CEO, uh, your story is your story. And I'm, I'm never going to say that you should do it like this. Please don't try this at home. Because <laughs> it, uh, it gets dicey at times. I want to start with a verse, which I'm going to press this magic button. Look at that. And this is, this is kind of a, a key verse. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Bottom line is, we don't know anything about anything. <laughs> really. I mean, you make your plans. You go to school. You think you're you know, going to be married for a lifetime. You think you're going to be educated. You think you're going to get a job. You think, you think this, you think that. But no one can imagine what God has planned for you. And I guess that's the, the bottom line that I want to say right off the bat. But first come with me to a kitchen table in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And it was 10 years ago, and I was sitting there with my dad. Now, my dad's name was Oliver Mock. He was a South Dakota farm boy, as square as they come. And I loved my dad. Dad was, at that point, dying of cancer. He was sitting at the breakfast table, not very hungry, but it was just the two of us. I was back there visiting, and he said to me, Oh, Loretta, I heard the most beautiful music last night. That's just how he said it. He said, It happened again. 
And the fact is, over many months, he'd had this recurring phrase of beautiful music. And he said, it was beautiful music. I said, what was it like, Dad? And he said, it was like this. Dum, and he, he would direct. Dum, da, da, dum, da, dum, da, dum, da, dum, da, da, dum, da, dum, da, dum. Familiar, right? You've heard that phrase? It's a Bach phrase from a beautiful piece. We said, I heard it again. It was such beautiful music. Now, the reason that I'm telling you this was I had a childhood that was filled with music. My dad was a, was a singer, and he was a professor at Bethel College, which is connected to the, the conference that this church is part of, actually. But in my childhood, which was filled with music, I, I just have these primal memories of uh, a language that was spoken. And the language was something like this. I would be in the front row of the church. My dad's suit would be all rustly in the, in the pew, and I'd kind of get comfortable and lay on his lap. And then it would be time for him to go up and lead the music or to sing or to do something up front. And then he'd come back and sit with me again. And, and in my awake, asleep, little kid, one, two, three-year-oldness, the music would kind of fade in and out with my consciousness, and it created in me a way of perceiving reality. Let me illustrate what I heard. This is my dad, Messiah. a little while and I will shake the hands and the earth the sea and the dry land and I will shake and he proceeded to shake you know thus saith the Lord that he will shake all these things. And my dad was big and strong and he would shake. And something in my little heart just expanded when I heard that. It was brilliant and it was beautiful and it was strong and powerful. And, and then sometimes on Saturday morning, I would wake up to my mom and dad practicing downstairs. I think my dad didn't really date. He just auditioned for an accompanist. <laughs> in fact, he kind of would say that. But, but my mom played the piano, and, and so I would wake up to the marriage of Figaro, or, or, you know, an opera, aria, or these different things that were just part of my life. Very often, there would be recitals to attend, and I was one of six kids, okay? I'm number four. Somebody had to stay home, somebody had to go, and Dad, Dad would say, Loretta, do you want to go with me to the recital? And I said, sure, because I thought maybe this would be the time when I would get ice cream. Almost never, ever happened. But again, just as a little kid, going with my dad and hearing beautiful music. There was a time in seventh grade, we were at a church in Northeast Minneapolis. He was the music minister. I didn't like church. I really didn't like this church. It was prickly. The kids were kind of, you know, uh, clicky. And one Sunday night, I didn't want to sit down where everyone else was, and I went up in the balcony. And I'll never forget, they were singing an old hymn that we probably don't even know anymore. Raise your hand if you do. It's called, We're Marching to Zion. You know that one? 
we're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion, we're marching upward to Zion, and it goes real high. Well, I'm this seventh grade kid, and I, you know, I don't want to be with anyone, and I'm standing up there all by myself, and I start to sing with the people down below, and I sang, and my voice got bigger and bigger, and pretty soon it started to wobble like the ladies in the choir, you know, I thought, oh, I have a vibrato, you know, it's like coming of age. But there was this really bizarre moment when as a seventh grade kid, I was praising God with people I didn't even like. And I suddenly felt like I was part of something that was bigger than myself and I was worshiping. I mean, it was like a conversion experience in a way in that I was, I was singing with the angels. <laughs> it was really great. So when I say that I learned, I grew up, speaking the language of music. Those are just a few little vignettes, but you kind of get the idea. You know, there was something special going on here. So, back to my dad. I said to dad, you know, dad, that beautiful music. I just heard this lecture I have to tell you about. Now, this is weird, and you're hearing more about me than maybe you want to know right now, but about two or three weeks before this happened, we had had this incredible opportunity as a family to go over to England. And it was a C.S. Lewis conference, and there were lots of lectures and various things in Cambridge. Very hotsy-totsy and really cool. And one of the professors was a man named Jeremy Begbie. And he was a musician who specialized in theology and the arts. And he started with this lecture that was brilliant. And the more I sat there and the more I listened, I thought, oh, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about music. He's talking about the meaning of music. And let me illustrate. This is going to mean nothing to you. Okay, here we go. It looks like, it looks like math. But he said, music is something that starts in equilibrium, particularly Western music in the 1680s or so in, in tonalities, starts in equilibrium. Something is introduced where tension is introduced, whether it's harmonically or rhythmically or something. And then it kind of ends real nicely and there's a sense of completion, resolution. So from equilibrium to tension to resolution. And you know the weirdest thing started to happen to me. He's illustrating this with symphonies and with songs and with art and with music and he's playing the piano. And I started weeping. It was so goofy. I thought, what is this? And I realized that he was speaking the language of my heart, and I had never heard the gospel in the language of my heart. Now, you've heard missionaries talk about Bible translation, and when people get their, their Bible written in their own language, how people just, you know, just start to weep and all. Well, that's how I felt that day. There was a story being told, and as Jeremy began to tell it, he said, for instance, equilibrium, think about the garden. Things are good, things are good. Something's introduced that's not good. And the rest of the time, we end up longing to go back home again. We long for home. And the resolution is, of course, when we're with the Lord again. So, or think of it this way, we're home, we go away from home, and it's sad, and we long to be back home again. Does that make sense to you? So that's what I began to explain to my dad 
about the lecture I heard. Now, leave that image, dad at the table, me explaining this. We're going to go on from there. And I'll come back to it later. There's a book that I have to recommend to you. And for grandmothers, aunts, uh, singles, whatever, I don't know if you've seen this. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the subtitle is, Every Story Whispers His Name. And I want to read to you something. Because, you see, this is all part of a very, very big story. Don't read it yet. I'm going to read it to you. Hang on. It's part of a very, very, very big story. My story is just this big. Your story is this big. We're all part of this really big story. In this Jesus Storybook Bible, it talks about, well, some people think the Bible is a book of uh, rules, things to do and not do. Some people think the Bible's a book of heroes, people to emulate. But no. The Bi now you can read along. The Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. Here we are at story night. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. And then this charming, you know, very colorful book goes on to tell all the stories in the Bible and how each one is a precursor to the big story, even the Old Testament story. So get it. Come up and see me later. But, but that's, that's the big story then that I began to learn as a kid. I started to learn the big story from my Auntie Ione. Got to tell you about Ione. Oh my, and we have an Ione here, don't we? Yes. <laughs> Favorite aunt. Wave your arm. Wave your arm, Ione, so everybody knows who you are. She's right down here. Okay. My Auntie Ione was not married. She was the best aunt in the world. And as one of six kids, we all needed a little extra attention. So Ione was a storyteller. Oh, was she a storyteller. She would put us to bed. She'd teach us to paint. She could tell stories, and she did tell stories. For 50 years, she went down to the inner city mission, took street kids off the street. She could keep 150 street kids spellbound with stories. And she did it for 50 years. They gave her a plaque when she retired. But. So when Ione died, the one thing I wanted to get was her flannel graph Jesus. <laughs> now raise your hand if you've ever seen a flannel graph. Yeah? I see some hands that are not raised. Ione made all her flannel graphs. And I thought this flannel graph Jesus was about the coolest thing ever. He would move across the flannel and, you know, <laughs> fish would appear out of one fish and bread would appear out of, you know, five loaves and two fishes. And he would do things. He would ride in boats and 
I just love this story of Jesus that I own told me. And that was about the level of my faith at that point. But I have to say, just like in the equilibrium, tension, you know, that whole scenario, you can't always stay home as a really happy, secure uh, little kid. And things happen. And things began to happen in my life. And in retrospect, I can see the way that a little child, that's me, learned the language of hope while growing up in a world that was more and more tension and reality filled. Um, hard things started to happen. Actually, let me tell you just a story about my grandfather. We, we had a cabin up north in Minnesota. Did I say it was for, yeah, I'm from Minnesota. 10,000 lakes in Minnesota, but as far as we were concerned, there was one, Mark Lake. I never ever in all my growing up years ever saw another boat on the lake. It's way up there. On the lake one day with my grandfather and my cousin, and it started to rain, and it's just pouring, and the oarlocks broke, the motor went out, we're kind of stranded on the lake. I'm about eight years old, and I'm starting to cry. I don't want to go fishing, you know. And my grandfather said the litany that kind of became the litany for, come on, buck up, have courage. He said to me, all Loretta, quit your belly aching and start fishing. <laughs> and I did. And I caught nine fish. <laughs> but I think somebody asked me once, how do, how do you learn courage? And sometimes it takes someone saying, you know, okay, press in. Press in, you can do this. And that was the role that my grandfather played. But hard things. Okay, I told you about Ione and Flannograph Jesus. I got a call one day from, um, I was at a piano lesson, and I got a call from my dad saying, I need to come pick you up. We've got bad news. And he came and got me, and it was the last of seven cancer surgeries for Ione. She'd lost both breasts, very many organs, and they were closing her up, and they gave her two months to live. And we were devastated, and my grandfather, who is a feisty man, would not hear of it, and he went to the mat for Ione. Now again, in prayer, you know, does God always heal? No. Sometimes does he heal? He can. He may. And in this situation, I began to learn something about prayer. And I began to learn that through weeks and then months, and then more months, and then years, loss of hair, treatment, various things. Ione was still with us. She was still telling us stories about Flannograph Jesus. And Ione, this was in her 40s, Ione lived to be 84. Go figure. They used to have her come to the hospital and talk to all the doctors about never give up hope. <laughs> Actually, she had a really squeaky voice, so she would have said, never give that was her. So as a little kid, learning the language of hope. Then my sister Roberta, the next year, she was a couple ahead of me. She was in sixth grade. I was in fourth grade, walking home from school one day, and she fell to the ground and began to have a really hard epileptic seizure. And thus began many years of out-of-control, uncontrollable grand mal seizures broken teeth, uh, you know, embarrassment. She couldn't go to school. Oh, gosh, it was hard. And I remember most vividly 
when there'd be a sound like that in the house, and we'd all go running. And chances are it was Roberta having a seizure. But one time, running upstairs, and I wasn't the first to get there. My mom was there, and my mom was cradling her thrashing self, Roberta. And my mom had her face turned to the sky, and she's saying, oh, Lord, I thank you for my beautiful daughter. <laughs> Whew. And I'm thinking, oh, my. <laughs> I'm not sure I would be very grateful at that point. But again, I was learning the language of hope in a very devastating situation. During those growing up years, I got more and more selfish while Roberta got more and more isolated. And I'm not proud to say that my high school years, I pretty much didn't want anything to do with her. My brother and I were popular and we were smart and we were in stuff and we did things. And you know what, I, I just didn't want to be bothered. I say that to my shame. And one of the things the Lord used to bring me to him at a Young Life camp many years later, when I was a junior in high school, was an awareness of my own sin. You know, I was pretty selfish. I was not compassionate and all. And when I heard the story of that being taken from me, that was really good news. I was learning the language of hope. Let me say, too, you know, it's an incredible thing, this hope business. Roberta did, I'll tell you the end of the story. Well, we don't know the end of the story. But she did get medication. She got regulated. She grew up. She got married. She had kids. She has a career, various things. It's a great story. But you know what? She also is going through a divorce. She's having other kinds of health issues. Is this story over? No. But when I call Roberta on the phone, her message, this Roberta, her message says, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And I go, oh gosh, how does she do that? 41 years of marriage and she does that? You know, but you know, she knows about hard stuff because she's been there. Well, came to know Christ, went to Bethel College. Uh, right out of high school. It was all of, I don't know, four miles away. I thought I was really stepping out. <laughs> and uh, I loved learning, and I loved my classes, and I loved being in the choir, and I loved doing all these things. And then I talked to my RD next, uh, next door, and she had on her wall this poster. This is another thing you should never try at home. She had a poster that was of her in a bikini sitting on a surfboard. And the surfboard was being held up by four really gorgeous lifeguards. <laughs> and I said, Sue, where did you get that picture taken? She says, well, I went out to California and I worked at this camp last summer. It was called Forest Home. <laughs> and I said, really? And I was always up for an adventure. <laughs> I wasn't all that shallow, but my brother and I both decided to apply, and we were accepted. Summer staff forced home. We painted my grandfather's house to earn the money to go. Flew into LAX. 
we called Forest home and we said, well, we're here. And they said, you're where? And, they, and I said, we're at LAX. And they said, well, we're out in Redlands. You need to get to Redlands and then we'll pick you up. Well, we're, we're Minnesota kids, you know, we don't know anything. So we, we go and we look at the map on the pillar and it looks like the RTD bus goes to Forest Home. <laughs> so we got ourselves a ticket for whatever it was, a quarter, 50 cents, or so, got on the bus and drove like nine hours to Forest Home. <laughs> but the, the reason I tell you that story is, it turns out later that Ben's father, my husband Ben's father, is an RTD bus driver. That was his route. He may have been, I don't know if he was, but he may have been our driver that day to take me out to where I met my husband. But the other part that's really sweet is that the few days later that I actually met my husband Ben was the day that his father died. So isn't that something, I mean, I like to think that his father's, one of his last driving acts was delivering me. <laughs> so... Well, how did this happen? I mean, here we are at Forest Home, and um, there, yes, a romance bloomed. I was nine years younger than Ben. I was 18 at this point. He was 27. Now, if your kids did this, would you die? <laughs> but it seemed like a good idea to us. <laughs> Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, yeah. But along about August, we started paying attention to each other. Someone said to Ben, I think you'd get along well with Loretta Mock. And, and sure enough, we did. And we spent every available moment together. And at the end of the summer, we had dated, oh, three and a half weeks or so. I went back to Bethel. He stayed in California doing his forced home deal. Well, a month later, September, Ben arrives. He'd taken a red eye to Bethel. It's Friday morning, he's in my dorm. I come down and there he is. And I was stunned, but why not? I mean, it's fun. <laughs> and uh, where it got interesting was he, the words just kind of came out of his mouth and he proposed. So, like, do the math, it's less than a month, you know. <laughs> so I was so stunned I could not speak for the entire weekend, finally sent him off. Pretended it had never been spoken, never happened. <laughs> and then somewhere along about the end of October, it seemed like a good idea. <laughs> so anyway, we communicated. I said, yes, I'll marry you. And he said, great. We saw each other two more times. And we were married in March. So this, you know, oh gosh. <laughs> so the truth was... I married a man, well, the day after the wedding. The wedding was in Minnesota. He came back for the wedding. Oh, by the way, I better not go into all these stories. But I will say that during the reception line, of course, he didn't know anyone, so he left. <laughs> in, in Midwest churches, your, your wedding receptions are down the basement, and you have little chicken salad sandwiches and little pillows with mints and a few nuts. Well, he was hungry, so he went downstairs, and my mother sent my little brother after him. Tell Ben to get back up here. So, whatever. So, 
anyway, the next day, we fly back to California. Suddenly, there I am, and it's like, oh my gosh, what have I done? Here I am in California. I don't know this man. And here's the other... The other thing I need to say at this point is that I neglected to mention something that's kind of important, and that is he lost, I, I thought we'd, we'd get married, move to Forest Home, and the hills would be alive with the sound of music. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. But what happened was, a month before we were married, he lost his job at Forest Home for running amok and carousing. Yes, it's true. <laughs> He has a, a, a long tale, which is his to tell, mostly, except for this part. So, not only could I not tell my parents that, you know, but the reality hit me hard between the eyes. Suddenly, I'm not at Forest Home, where I wanted to be. I'm living in L.A. with this man. <laughs> and I'm not sure what to do. But I do know that... I better quit my belly aching and start fishing. <laughs> and you know, the Lord was so good, I have to say. Gosh, we were surrounded by people who loved us. Ben got a job at um, La Jolla Presbyterian Church as a youth pastor. The, the pastor and his wife there, Louie and Colleen Evans, some of you may know them, became dear, dear friends. Their four children, three boys and a girl, were God's gracious provision for us to see a family that functioned, that was just a dear and wonderful family. And through those years that we were there, I was able to get my feet on the ground, surrounded by, again, the body of Christ, that this time I really liked. <laughs> but the body of Christ helped me finish school. I went back to school, finished at UCSD, graduated in literature. And then eventually we moved to Irvine, California. Now, at that point, Irvine was cows, and asparagus and some orange trees. Anybody from Irvine? There was nothing there, but it was supposed to be like a perfectly planned community, and we moved in for the sake of starting a church there. What a great calling. I mean, it was, it was so much fun. Everybody's young. Every, you know, there, there, there is no older generation there, so if it was going to be done, we had to do it. We knocked on doors. We rang doorbells. We delivered things. And, and the Lord was gracious to start, to start a new community there. I will say things, the, the tempo picks up. We started having children later on. I, I got my teaching credential there and then began to have children. Four of them, Dan, Joel, Andy, and Mary. And it got really full. You know what life is like when you have little kids around. There was a point at which I remember Ben was so busy with the church. And there had been 18 nights in a row where he'd been gone. I know because I was getting really hostile. And I, I had started marking them on the calendar. <laughs> so that I could graciously throw it in his face later. But I didn't. Instead, I kept trying to do everything myself. And when the sprinkler system went out, that's when I broke. I had gone to Build and Grow Hardware Store with three of the kids in a little cart, and I was buying sprinkler parts, and I was going to fix them, and I was going to be superwoman, and I had the glue and all this stuff. 
And I, I must have looked erect because when I got home, I flung, I flung myself on the floor of the kid's bedroom and I kicked and I screamed and I cried and I said, Lord, you've got to be my father. You've got to be my handyman. I can't do this anymore. And those of you who have raised children, you come to those places sometimes, you know. Well, apparently someone else thanks be to God, had been watching too. And it was one of the elders in our church who had seen me at Building Girl <laughs> and said to his wife, it's not pretty. <laughs> so a little bit later, they drove immediately to my house, knocked on the door, and Glenn Ormseth stood there and he said, Loretta, can I help you? Now, just think of my prayer. I needed a handyman. I needed a friend. And, and through my tears, his wife made me tea. Glenn went out and fixed the, the sprinkler system. And again, I was being taught the language of hope, that prayer does something specific in very difficult situations. The difficult situations became rather like Chuck E. Cheese when you have those little, God forbid you ever go to Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> Do you know that game where the things pop up and you take the bat and you hit it? What is it, whack-a-mole? All right, ladies, that is where the recording cuts off. So <laughs> we need to find out what happened after this whack-a-mole part. Loretta, thank you so much for joining <laughs> us. Welcome to the Story Night podcast. would love to have you finish <laughs> what you were starting to say there. I know this is, we're kind of picking this up now 10 years later, but welcome. You have you say hello to the listeners quick and then finish your story. Okay. This is really funny. I will say I was standing in front of a lot of ladies at Santa Barbara Community Church for story night. And now I'm sitting in my she shed in the backyard and it used to hold lawnmowers and now it has my office. <laughs> so it's just me and Jessica and all of you out there. But I will go back to what I just said. Prayer does something specific in very difficult situations. And the difficult situation, of course, was the meltdown that I had when I cried out to the Lord and said, Father, you've got to be my father. You've got to be my caretaker. I can't do everything. You know, difficult situations keep popping up, don't they? Little did I know there's a lot more going on than difficult sprinkler systems. Life sometimes is like those moles that keep popping up and we keep trying to hit them down and move on with life. But oh my goodness, we just are not able to do it. And things get hard and things get difficult. And my point is that prayer is a very specific dealing with those kinds of things. Now, I need to tell you that one of my children, actually more than one of my children, but the first one was a son who was diagnosed with Tourette syndrome as a seven-year-old back when we lived in Irvine. Tourette syndrome is a neurological disorder that results in disinhibition and noises and movements and all that can be very disconcerting. And it was. And if ever there was anything I wanted to, to whack out of my life, that was it. But I have to tell you that the remarkable way that God dealt with us was to surround us with the body of Christ. In our church in Irvine, one morning, I went out to the front door 
And I had been devastated by this diagnosis, not sure how we were going to handle it. Sorry for my son. But on the front step was a rolled up piece of paper wrapped in yellow ribbon. And I opened it up and it said, Loretta and Ben, we love you so much and we love your son. And we are committed to praying for him every Tuesday from 5.30 in the morning until 11 at night in 15-minute increments. And here are the people who have signed up. (laughs) Now, that was my first experience of a really functioning prayer chain. And let me tell you, though he was not healed immediately, thus was set in process, a way of life, a way of looking at difficulty that was remarkable and the healing of the Lord as he dealt with us through the years, through the diagnosis of a couple of our other children. We found great doctors. We found great support. We found lots of things that helped us know how to navigate this thing with humor and joy and creativity In fact, my son would now say, you know, I think people with Tourette's are a cut above on the evolutionary ladder. (laughs) Of course, tongue in cheek, but that is true. He has a wit like Robin Williams that puts things together in amazing ways. So prayer, it does something specific in very difficult situations. We moved later on to New Jersey. My husband accepted a position at a church that was 253 years old. Now, we had just started a church in Irvine, California. Now we live in New Jersey in a really old church with a graveyard around it that was pre-Revolutionary War graves around it. This is the kind of tradition there was there. My, my boys didn't own long pants, and the boys there wore long pants and dressed up for Sunday It was a cultural shift that was really, well, disconcerting was probably too tame a word. It kind of rocked our world. And though we made tremendous friends there and had a really wonderful time, there were a lot of very difficult things for the children, particularly culturally, and they they struggled. And consequently, we struggled. A famous pastor once said, you're never happier than your least happy child. (laughs) which meant that we weren't very happy at that point. But, you know, something really wonderful happened during those New Jersey years. A friend of mine had heard about some groups that were being started with an organization called Moms in Touch. She heard it on, on Focus on the Family and suggested that a few of us begin to gather. And because all of us were worried about our least happy child, (laughs) we began to pray. And we prayed in a very concerted way, following more or less the plan that they had set out for us, which was to pray biblically for things that we wanted to see happen in the lives of our children and in the lives of their teachers and classmates. And, you know, thus began what was a remarkable provision for me, but also for our family. Praying together, moms who are committed to praying together, became the air that I breathed. It became the soil I grew in. And I would have to say it has been the single most important 
influence on my life over these many years since. My oldest son was then 12. Well, he's 42 now, 43 maybe. And I'm still praying with a group that follows a Moms in Touch format. So that's 31 years of praying together with moms in all the different places we've lived. And we've lived in a lot of places. So that single thing, prayer does something specific in difficult situations. So the theme verse for Moms in Touch was from Lamentations 2.19. And it says, Arise, cry out in the night as the watches of the night begin. Pour out your heart like water in the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint from hunger at the head of every street. And pretty much that's the situation that many of us found ourselves in over those next years. Through teenage years, through difficulty, through Tourette's, through depression, through moves, through discomfort, through crises, really, what whatever propels you to pray more than the lives of your children who are fainting from hunger at the head of every street, that became the thing that kept us going. So every place we moved, I either found or started a Moms in Touch group. Now, I have to say that Moms in Touch is now called Moms in Prayer, which is probably a better name. So if you're looking for them, look up Moms in Prayer. But that became the source of the closest friendships, the most amazing fellowship. Uh, the, and for me, the, the training in righteousness, training in the Word of God, because it's so biblically based, every week you're praying scripture, and that scripture has been week after week after week after 30 years ingrained into my heart. So I would say, you know, difficulty, the whack-a-mole, it led me to a deep, deep appreciation for the power of prayer. Now, along those lines, I was talking about moving. So we were in New Jersey four or five years, and then my husband received a call to move to Holland, Michigan, to Hope College, and he was to be the dean of the chapel there. And thus began a seven-year period that was, again, a time of teaching and, and real power as we saw what God did with a revival. Now, I know revival gets tossed around a lot, but we we went through some years where we saw an amazing work of God in college students' lives. And it began with the prayers of many people that have gone on for a long time. There were a lot of people praying. But when we arrived, it's like we, we surfed this wave of God's uh, work in the world. And the students started with a series of meetings where there was a confessional sort of revival where they they actually got up and confessed sins and then were surrounded by others in prayer and were purified and cleansed and made whole and called into service and moved out into the world in mission. And I mean, it, it's an amazing story. That period of time was filled with conflict. It was filled with difficulty. And it was also filled with some of the greatest laughter we've ever known. 
among the staff, among students, among our family. It just became a season where the difficulty was the impetus for God to just pour out joy. I don't know how else to say it. It was, it was a remarkable season of time. And again, the prayer through that time was, was, was so instructive, both in our, in, in both of our lives, but also in the lives of all these students. Students were praying and being called to places all over the world. We've got students that are everywhere. So discipling all that time was, was just marked by that. To our surprise, there came another call after seven years, and this was a call to another college, and this was Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. So <laughs> to keep you remind, reminded of this, so we started in California. We went to Irvine. We went to New Jersey. We went to Michigan. And now here we are bouncing back to the West Coast. Ben became the campus pastor there, and I was very involved in ministry to students. Throughout the years, I had lots and lots of what we called Capax Day groups, Capacity for God, Capax Day, Latin. And they were discipleship groups that met in our home. So year after year after year, students, young faces were in our home and learning and growing and learning to pray and all. And it was just a, a really sweet time. Also, when we moved back here, none of our children wanted to stay in Michigan, so they all ended up in California as well. We went to school, actually, with each of our children, two at, at Hope College and two at Westmont College, which is remarkable. But then our children all found their spouses. So I have four children, all of them married, all of them living, actually, not far from us. And now we have nine grandchildren. So you can see that time has passed. There's, there's a lot of living that goes on. <laughs> but the single most important factor over these years has been the continuation in prayer that really grew out of difficulty. It really grew out of waiting for the Lord to deal with these sprinkler systems in our, in our lives, <laughs> with the heartache in our lives. And we've seen him do this over and over through his word. Right now, so we're in the pandemic. Oh my goodness. Where's the hope in that? When I started this episode way back 10 years ago, I think I started with the verse, no eye has seen, no mind has conceived what God has planned for those who love him. And this is really the theme of this entire talk is in, we can't imagine what's coming down the pike, the pandemic being one of those things. But we can't imagine what God has planned for those of us who love him. And we cling to that so securely. We know that he's got us. I met this morning with a friend. We have communion every week with a friend who is dealing with a cancer diagnosis. And... As we meet with her and we talk, sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down. But we always know that the Lord has her covered, as he has each of us covered, as each of us face the end of our lives. I mean, we all have the same diagnosis, do we not? That we will, we will die. But we all have the same hope that we will live with him eternally when we love him. Yesterday, I talked to my mom on the phone, and <laughs> mom is 
uh, her 100th birthday is coming up pretty soon. And she is one remarkable lady. But as we hung up last night, she said, oh, this is such a good life. And she says, you know, I, I wonder, I don't think I'm going to see the next president. I have, you know, we, we got, you know, Biden is now president. And she said, four years from now, I don't think, I think this is going to be my last president. <laughs> and she said, but you know, that's okay because I am going to go be with Jesus. And then I'm going to keep an eye on all of you guys, <laughs> all of her many, many children and grandchildren, but she can't wait to be with the Lord. And has she ever seen some stuff over the years? She's seen very difficult things, but she has been a woman of prayer. And for that, I'm grateful. I had that example. I told you about her and my sister. That's her character. So I want to go back to something I talked about early in the episode. And this was sitting at the breakfast table with my dad, my dad who loved music and who taught me the language of music as the language of my heart. And do you remember I talked about hearing a, a speaker in Cambridge, actually, who talked about music starting in equilibrium, that's the E, tension is introduced, whether it be rhythmic or melodic or something, that's the T. And then there is resolution, that's the R, where all things come together. There's a meeting of all the strands of the discomfort, and we are made whole and complete again. And he was speaking of it in the musical sense, but theologically and emotionally, isn't that what we all long for? We all long to go home. So I was sitting at the breakfast table. And we were, my dad and I were talking about these things because he was dying of cancer. And I said to him, Dad, it's kind of like this. This beautiful music that you've been hearing is like this. And I let it hang in the air. And he looked up and he looked at me and he said, he said, I want to go home. I want to go be with Jesus. <laughs> it makes me cry even now. Because he understood where we're all headed. We're headed for resolution. Our hope is in Christ. We can be with him throughout our lives on earth in prayer. But ultimately, we will be with him eternally. So that's what I want to leave you with today is hope in Christ. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things that God has for those who love him. Loretta, I cannot thank you enough, one, for sharing back in 2010, and then for, for coming and taking time to finish this story and, and update our listeners on the podcast. I know i can just speak for all listeners that you are just a ball of light and, and energy and you can hear it in your voice. It is so fun to hear you speak. And you strike me as somebody that everyone would just want to have in their lives. Everybody needs a Loretta. And as you talk about your mom, I think everyone needs your mom too. <laughs> I mean, 
can I get her to share her story on the podcast? Because I think that would be pretty amazing to have a hundred year old woman sharing her story on this. I mean, how many listeners would love to hear that? Talk about a story. And she clearly has left such a legacy to you. It is evident in your voice. Mm-hmm. I love how you explained through music, just the life story of equilibrium, tension and resolution. And Gosh, we all see that in in small doses, right? We have sort of that little loop going throughout our lives where we have a season of equilibrium, a season of tension, and a season of resolution, but it's all on the small scale. And then there's there's the bigger picture, right? That you said the entire kind of gospel fits into this for the big picture of equilibrium, tension, and ultimate resolution. I wanted to just uh, just mention something for our listeners too, because Loretta and I, not only did we figure out that we had the Irvine connection, but um, her husband, Ben, wrote a book called Waiting. And this was a book that was given to me by a dear friend during a season where I was in a time of tension. And it was a waiting season for me. And I know everybody listening has had a waiting season. Sometimes it's short, sometimes it's long, and it, and it can be for all different things, whatever it is that you're waiting for. It meant so much because it was it was so balanced. It was so hopeful. And yet it was so realistic. And uh, I just can't recommend that book enough. And I think it's just a testament to you, Loretta and Ben, and just your family and the legacy that you've created that really is about hope. And it's about prayer. With that, I just wanted to invite you to pray for our listeners. Pray with that hope. And and ladies, we're going to put some links in the episode notes as we often do for some of these, some of these resources, um, if you'd like to, to get connected. But um, Loretta, would you, mm-hmm. would you pray for our listeners, especially those who are in the tension mm-hmm. part of it? Oh, thank you, Jesus, that you are who you say you are, that you are the good shepherd and the good shepherd always watches out for the sheep. You hold the lambs close to your heart. And you gently lead those that have young. Thank you for holding each of us close to your heart, no matter what season of life we're in. And I pray, Lord, that you would lead us into your word, that you would lead us into truth, that you would lead us into fellowship with other believers, that you would lead us into worship in a good church with people who are like-minded. Thank you, Lord, that we can count on you to see us through the whole journey. And we we just honor you. We give you praise and we say thank you, thank you, thank you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much again, Loretta. This was this was a treat and I, I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much, ladies, for listening. And we hope you tune back in for our next story. Good night, y'all. The Story Night Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Mac. For more women's stories, visit calvarymac.com slash women.